deceptive manipulative. Is also a former social worker and a political campaign activist. Some people in town say the base is run by aliens working with our federal government to conduct mind control and genetic experiments. I'm leaving. I'm glad. Thanks a lot, society, for railroading my ass. What's up, everyone? Welcome to the Eerie Americus. I'm one of your hosts, Christy Hall. And this is Vicky Ayala. What's up, Vix? How you doing today? Uh, you know, much of the same. Home, hanging out, chilling. You know what the weird thing is? I don't think I have cabin fever. I am very used to being home, and I am okay with being home, and I have worked from home before, so I'm actually okay. I'm not even bored yet, but you know what? Having a podcast helps with that because I have spent a lot of time researching and fixing our YouTube page, which if you don't know we have YouTube, we do have a YouTube, and I fix the videos and updating the website. Um, Honestly, I have not been bored yet, but I also like have a routine. I still wake up early. I get up. I take a shower. I make breakfast. I haven't blown through all the shows on Netflix. Like, I feel like I still have no time to do everything because I wanted to read a book and I haven't read it yet. (laughs) And like between FaceTime calls with my family and stuff, like I'm still okay. But I do understand people having cabin fever and being sick of their kids. and being. I've been falling off my routine. I haven't gotten my pajamas in two days. I was proud of myself for washing my hair. Well, you've got a lot of other things going on too compared to everyone else. I think a lot of people are just literally bored at home and you haven't had a chance to be bored at home. Yeah, yeah, I'm still going through a lot with like my mom and stuff like that. And I feel like alcohol probably isn't the best coping mechanism um, for me. And so I haven't, and I only, and like in normally if I did drink, I would only drink on the weekend. So I have stuck to, if I do drink, I only drink on the weekends. I had a glass of wine yesterday, but that's just because I was like, doing the finishing touches on my case, just making sure it was good. And I was just like, all right, I'll have a glass of wine while I do this because I would generally have like a glass of wine while I was researching just because I don't know why it like makes me like write better. But other than that, yeah, it just, it kind of made me relax. And like, you know, a lot has gone on this week between my mom and... I swear, if I was a detective, I would solve every crime if I had a glass of wine in my hand. So I... That should be like requirement. Like you walk into like, a crime scene so- and someone hands you some wine and they're like, go ahead. Yeah. And then you look around and you're like, okay, this was clearly the husband. And then you walk out of the room. I feel like I always case. like... I know we saw that meme today, but like, I think I would always blame the husband. 98% of the time it is. Or someone related to the husband. Or a lover. Or the, or, say, or, the, or the boyfriend or the girlfriend. <laughs> or both. Or both. <laughs> and it's weird, but I the one thing I have to say is that I have been looking for new stuff to watch. And like I said, I don't want to blow through everything because this is going to last for a while. But I gave in and I fucking watched Tiger King. And when I finished it, it was one of those things where it was like, I didn't regret it, but I also didn't know what the hell I had just watched. And I was like, So somebody asked me to describe it and I'm like, how am I supposed to describe this show? It is a gay hick dude who has tigers illegally. His husbands are really straight. Sorry for the three people in the world who might not have seen this. And then like, spoilers right now. Right. And then like, he runs for president and he tries to kill somebody. And then like, it's a bunch of stuff. I'm like, I can't really explain to you. So my friend was like, oh, I don't think that's my type of show. I'm like, but that's the thing. It is literally nobody's type of show. If this was your type of show, then something's wrong with you. It is literally nobody and everybody's type of show. You just kind of have to watch it. So I watched it. Then I made you watch it. And then I made my sister watch it. And I made my brother watch I made everybody in my life watch it to the point where when we were FaceTiming my mom, she now know she hasn't watched it and knows everything that happened in Tiger King because we spent so many conversations talking about it. And she's just like, all right, so what's going on? And like, every time we describe something, she's like, is this the same show? I'm like, yeah, it's the same thing. And she's like, are you sure? And I'm like, promise it's the same show. 
And she's like, wow. She's like, so how did you guys watch it so quickly? There must be a lot of episodes. I'm like, no, there are seven batshit episodes and that is all you need for the craziness. Although they're talking about a season two, which I'm like, because apparently there's an article that came out from like one of his husbands or something like that that said that the show didn't even like touch the surface of how crazy he is. And I'm like, are you sure? I can see that. I can absolutely see that. Crazy. They also didn't show him doing meth, which clearly he was on most of the time. Right. So see, that's what something that the guy said, and he was like, you know, he's like a meth addict, and they never showed it. You were the one that told me to watch it, (laughs) and so like at first I was like, okay, what the hell is going on? What am I watching? Why did I make you? (laughs) To an extent, but I would have watched it anyway. I feel it's one of those things. It's like a car crash. You can't not. That's why I tell people, I'm like, it's a train wreck. Can't stop watching it. And not just that too. Also, there were three things that came through my mind about four thousand times. I must have said, white people, man, they're fucking crazy secondly all three of those people should be in jail i i don't believe she's a sanctuary all three of them are like cult leaders they need to be in jail all three of them. and that's the thing like i read an article that was like everybody's missing the point of anime i'm like trust me nobody nobody really missed the point it's just like there's too much stuff going on these animals shouldn't have been in these cages in the beginning it just became about a war between three people who wanted to be literally the kings of animals that should not be confined anywhere. And it's crazy because I feel like they all did this documentary for one reason. Like, I feel like they all did it to, like, throw dirt on each other. And I'm like, all you guys did was reveal that you're batshit and that you're all criminals. Whether it's because you're illegally hoarding these tigers, you're using money for your presidential campaign, you're doing a murder for hire, or you've murdered your husband and fed him to a tiger. Nobody here is innocent. I'm shocked that Joe's the only one in jail. And it's not even for the illegal tigers. And I'm just like, all the things you think he should go to jail for, and that's not even what he fucking goes to jail for. I just hope that you get your karma. And that's all I'm going to say about that. And if you haven't checked it out... You probably should. Yeah. You know what it is? It's going to be one of those cultural things we remember talking about in quarantine. It is. And I even asked my sister, I'm like, do you think this would be as popular if we weren't in quarantine? And she was like, yes. You want to know why? Because we're all fucking crazy. They would have watched this shit anyway. It just would have taken a little bit longer for it to get bigger. It wouldn't have blown up like in the three days that it's now it's all because you're home i found something really cool on phantomsandmonsters.com it's one we don't really cover that often so i thought it would be cool Ooh. it's actually a, a ufo sighting cool of all cool places it was in yosemite in california oh, that's awesome in 2011, I was working at a youth hostel near Yosemite National Park. Super cool. A coworker and I got off after a late closing shift in the cafe, and we decided to go chill up at the top of the hill on the property. We drove his Tahoe up there and sat and talked for a while. It was around 1 a.m., and we were in deep conversation. I was in the middle of saying something when suddenly my friend exclaimed, Look! and pointed towards the horizon. I saw it from the corner of my eye. An illuminated object came flying around the hilltops in the distance and towards us. The way it flew was incredible because it seemed effortless and almost extra dimensional, question mark. I don't know if that's a word, but I know what you mean. But I I feel like we totally understand what it means. (laughs) I like that. Without any other way to describe it. It came towards us and stopped at a a hover above the valley beside us. It was maybe 30 yards from us. Oh, shit. Very visible. not, Not trying to really like hide. Pretty damn close. It had orange lights circling around it and one blue light that stayed still. It was probably the size of a large bus and made absolutely no noise. My friend and I, still sitting in his vehicle, shocked, got out and just stared at it in amazement. Probably what I would have done too. Me too. The UFO just hovered there for 10 to 15 minutes. It did nothing but hover there, and after a while, it started to get cold, and we had to climb back into the vehicle. It was still there hovering when our attention became drawn to another light we saw down in the valley below. I said, is that another one? I'm not sure if it was, but when we looked back, the object had finally vanished. We didn't see it fly off. It was just gone. That's when I told my friend to turn his car on and bolt. 
because I got frightened at that point for some reason. We darted down the hill back to the cafe and we sat outside for a while in absolute shock just to process WTF we had just seen. I had told him when we were up there to take a picture because I saw him fiddling with his phone at one point and I was too dumbfounded to know where mine was. But when we got back, I asked him if he took pictures and he said no. Oh, pictures already didn't happen. If you're another guy, I get it. But if you're a female, you shouldn't have asked the guy to do this. Yeah, it's kind of your job to take the pictures because the guy's never going to do it. So I regretfully do not have proof, but this is my testimony. I wish I had proof because when we were told my boss about it the next day, he just brushed it off and proceeded to tell us some bogus story about a ghost train. Wait, so his explanation for a UFO was a ghost train? <laughs> you know, when people, you tell them one story and they have to come back with another story. Like, that's Oh, I'm about to say it. Yeah, like, I saw a UFO yesterday while well, I yeah. saw a ghost well, train. Well, did you ever hear about the ghost train? Ever since then, I haven't told too many other people because, yeah, it is beyond belief. and VM. Any UFO sightings, one, make it a point not to get that close and not to hover for that long. So that was a pretty interesting. It makes me wonder if they saw them or were they watching them back Right, like, is that why they were just hovering there without doing anything? Were they just kind of, like, seeing who was going to make the first move? I don't really know how aliens think, needless to say. It would be interesting to know. But, yeah, I thought it was really cool and something we never really touch up on. I've got a story we actually haven't covered before. And it's weird because I struggled with what case to do because now that we have some, you know, time at home, I've been researching, we've been both been researching multiple cases at once. And I had originally told Christy that I was going to do something completely different and realized that in all of my OCD, I completely wrote up a case and never did it. And it was totally supposed to have been done already. So I'm going to jump in here. Vicky has about 12 cases sitting around. She just always forgets. I do. I have 12 cases around and then I still research new ones and then don't do the 12 cases. You have like four seasons worth. And then she's like, I don't know what to do this week. I'm like, one of your four seasons. She says it every single time that I'm like, Christy, I don't know what case to cover. She's like, I don't know. One of the 12 that you have sitting there. No, I'm going to do this. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm finally going to do Hold on. I haven't finished writing for the week. We are alike in so many ways and so different in so many ways. And that's one where we're totally different at. I'm like, I remember I like the, this the, case. the time that Christy's laptop broke down and she had to use mine. And she was like, you have way too much OCD because I have everything in like folders and the folders are categorized. So my cases are categorized. And she was just like, you're, you're, you're insane. And I was just like, I'm sorry. Mind you, that's how I found this case. I was clicking through my folders and I was like, what's in this folder? And like in my, one of my little my paranormal folder is the case that I'm going to do today. Yay! You have probably heard a ghost story or two in your lifetime or in this podcast. And if they were like many of the ghost stories, they're probably about someone who passed away with unfinished business. Because often the ghosts that appear to the living have a message that they want to send or, you know, just something unfinished that they didn't get to complete in their life. And, you know, after all, traditionally, ghosts are supposed to be the spirits of deceased ones who for some reason can't cross over. So most people just think of them as stories or just, you know, you know, just things like I know a lot of people who I could tell them I saw a ghost Tom blue in the face and they just be like, whatever, I don't believe you. And in the crazy times we live in, I still never thought that I would say, what if I told you about a ghost story where the ghost presented evidence that was used in a murder trial? It sounds like that show, The Ghost Whisperer. Yep. But this story is true and it sounds insane and it sounds unbelievable. But so are a lot of the things that we talk about in this podcast. Very true. But that's exactly what happened in 1897. Um, It's the story of a woman named Elva Zona Heaster. And she's a woman who came back and helped solve her own murder in the only case in the American judicial system 
where the word of a ghost helps solve the crime and convict someone of murder. So this story begins on January 23rd, 1897 in Lewisburg, West Virginia. And it begins with a man named Erasmus Shue. See, this is how you know it's old. No one names their kids Erasmus anymore. Nobody. But in this, he's also known as Edward and Shue. So I'm going to use those names. And he was a blacksmith. He was married to a woman named Elva Zona Heaster. Um, they had been married for about three months. Uh, so on this day, he was home and he I think he was going to the market from what I because like this, some articles like the there's a little bit of a difference like discrepancy. But from what I've seen the most is that he was going to the market. And he asked his neighbor's 11 year old son named Andy Jones, who El- often helped Elva with chores to see if she needed anything. And so the boy walks along into their log house, walks through the front door and sees Elva's lifeless body at the foot of the stairs. And at first, he kind of just stands there staring at the body in shock because, of course, he's 11. And he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know what's going on. According to some of the articles I read, they described her body as stretched out straight with her legs together, one arm at her side, the other across her chest with her head tilted to one side, which is a really kind of, I feel like, odd way to be at the bottom of the stairs. Like someone, to me, it sounds like someone posed her that way. There's no proof of that. But like, it sounds weird. So at first, of course, because he's only 11, the boy thought that maybe she was just like asleep on the floor, which I guess in an 11 year old's mind, that might make sense. So obviously, that was not the case. So he walks towards her, starts calling her name. She doesn't respond. And that's when he like gets super panicked and runs out of the house. He runs to his mom and she calls like the local doctor. And like, I guess back then you just had like local people that you just knew what they were doing. So there was like a local doctor and coroner. His name was Dr. George Knapp. And then afterwards, the boy runs to Edward, who apparently was like at the black. Like I have I found an article that said that he was at the blacksmith shop. I found some articles that say that he had went to the market. But he at this point, Andy runs to the blacksmith shop, told him what he has discovered. And, you know, Edward is in like shock and he's devastated and he runs right home. Now, I found conflicting reports about who called the doctor. Most reports say that Andy's mother called the doctor, but there are some reports that say that when Edward got home, he called the doctor. Either way, he got home before the doctor got there. By the time the doctor got there, it took nearly an hour because it's 1897 and everything takes forever. So it takes him nearly an hour. By the time the doctor gets there, Edward had already returned home, carried his wife's dead body to the bedroom, washed her, dressed her, laid her out on the bed, and like basically prepared her body for burial. He had dressed her in a high neck dress, which I know like those were popular at the time, with like a stiff collar and placed a veil over her face. See, okay, this is two things. I I understand back in the day, people didn't believe in like preserving a crime scene. But why immediately do all these things? That's the strangest reaction I've ever heard. Like, I understand, like, maybe being devastated, moving her, cradling her, hugging her, maybe taking her off the floor, putting her somewhere else. But you, like, legit washed her and dressed her. You were okay handling your wife's body less than an hour before you found out she was dead? Yeah. Sus. So even with this strange-ass freaking behavior, the doctor goes and he examines her. So as he's examining her... Edward's like holding his wife's head. He's crying uncontrollably as the doctor's examining her, which has to be awkward. And I don't know. This is how you know, like it was a really long time ago. Nowadays, you would not be allowed to watch a doctor examine someone. But when Dr. Knapp goes to examine her neck and her head, Edward goes from like being devastated and crying to like getting super snippy and like aggravated. 
and gets a little aggressive. You would think that the doctor would get suspicious, but he does not. Instead of getting suspicious, he just didn't want to upset Edward anymore. So he kind of just stops examining her, leaves without examining her fully. The body parts that he had been able to examine didn't seem to have anything suspicious about them. And since he had also been treating Elva for a couple of weeks because she was supposedly pregnant, he listed the cause of death as everlasting faint. It apparently means a heart attack. I don't know how. But then he changes it to complications from pregnancy, even though there are reports that she might not have even been pregnant. And there was like literally nothing to support that any of this was a complication, complication from, a preg- from pregnancy includes falling downstairs or being found at the yeah. of the steps. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Her didn't know. Pregnant, if that's the case. Right. Like I already didn't. So like you really don't want to. So following her death, the body gets prepared for burial with Edward assisting in the preparation of a body of her body. And I literally wrote in my research, is this a thing? Like, I guess back in the days you could help. So he's the one who placed her in the casket and he was always handling her head. See, this is why coroners are so crucial because this right, is like super weird. Right. It's weird. So um, he's always handling her head. He folded a sheet on one side of her head and an article of clothing on the other side of her head which he said would make her rest easier. But to me, it's like he was trying to steady her head. So then after this, her, you know, they're preparing her. She ends up getting buried in her childhood home. And they have, for lack of a better word, a bizarre funeral with even more odd behavior from Edward because all of this wasn't fucking odd already. And I love that it's all either ignored or explained away. Oh, yeah. And it continues. It continues to get ignored and explained away. So now they're at the funeral. And whenever the casket was opened, Edward always remained at the head of the casket. He spent the entire funeral pacing back and forth by her casket, fiddling with her head and her neck. And it was all made stranger by the fact that he covered her head and neck with a scarf. A scarf. I know it's January, but it's like there's not a weather where she's going. Apparently, it didn't even, like, match her dress or anything. And when he was questioned as to why, he just claimed that the scarf was her favorite scarf and that she would have wanted to be buried with it. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. As if that wasn't strange enough, he also kept propping her head up with a pillow and then later on, like, a rolled-up cloth. Who who fucks with someone's head this much? I I don't understand. This is Without any suspicion. Yeah. And even with all of this shit and like all of this weird fucking behavior, the guest just figured it was part of his grieving process. I'm like, all right, grieve, but why are you messing with her head? Like, literally. With your dead wife's head is a part of your grieving process? Wow, that's creepy. Well, yeah, this is what happens though, because it's 1897, he's a man. And they apparently he was like really well liked in the community. So, you know, he obviously can't do anything bad. And so no one expected a thing, except for his mother in law. Elva's mother, Mary Jean Heaster, because Mama knows best. Exactly. So apparently Mary Jean never liked him. There's not too much on Elva's background, but one of the first things it says is that when she met Edward and stuff and they were like, you know, before they got married, the mother never liked him. And she really had like no reason. She just didn't like him. But I feel like that's like a mom's intuition. I think it was just mother's intuition because I really don't think she had a reason to not like him other than just knowing something was wrong. So she was convinced that he murdered his her daughter. And But she had no proof. She had no evidence. She was just like, no, he murdered her. I just don't have anything to prove it. So she keeps thinking. She keeps wishing. She's like, I really wish that I had something, something that could tell me or prove that he killed her. And like literally had this thought, I wish that she could just come back and tell me, like come back and tell me that he's the one who murdered you so I can, I can tell someone. 
Well, I guess someone heard her wishes because that is exactly what happened. So Mary Jean every morning would pray for Elva to somehow return from the dead and tell her what happened. She did this for weeks. until finally, about a month after Elva was buried, Mary Jean claimed that four nights in a row, Elva came to her in her dreams and told her the truth behind her death. She said Elva's spirit, quote, came as a bright light, gradually taking a human form and filling the room with a chill. It was then that Elva's ghost would tell her mother that Edward was a very cruel man, had abused her, and on that day attacked her in a, while in a rage when he thought that Elva hadn't made any meat for his dinner. So wait, he killed her because dinner wasn't prepared? No, because there was no meat prepared for his dinner. He thought that the dinner wasn't good enough. But that's why he killed her, and she said that he broke her neck. And as she told her mother about the breaking of her neck, homegirl did a whole exorcist and, like, completely turned her head around. That's how she described it, like, turned her head completely around. And then afterwards, her ghost would just walk away while staring at her mother. And this happened four nights in a row. So after this, Mary Jean starts to tell neighbors about this and also immediately goes to the neighborhood prosecutor named John Preston, telling him everything that happened in hopes that he would reopen the case. And she... Obviously, he didn't believe her at first, of course, because who, who would? Even so, even as someone who's been open to those types of experiences, I... And a lot you know, of the time, it, you would just assume it's your gr- uh, grieving mother. Exactly. I would just be like, that's your grief talking. That's just your grief coming out. Like, that didn't happen. I would also be skeptical. But she was so persistent and so convincing that Preston just started... Like, he just was like, you know what? Let me start asking some questions. So he starts kind of asking around town just, you know, some questions. And this kind of, this leads to something. It leads to him being told by several neighbors about Edward's bizarre ass behavior at the funeral because he didn't know about it. So this just goes to show that people did see it. They acknowledged it, but they kind of just didn't question it. They didn't say anything. And it's not until he starts saying like, hey, anything strange happened? Like, oh, by the way, he was acting like a freaking crazy person at her funeral. And then he also speaks to Dr. Knapp, who then admitted that he hadn't actually completed his examination of the body before determining the cause of death and that he, quote, might have mistaken his diagnosis. Like, no shit. Why would he have had to complete it? I mean, this was just a woman after all. Right, like, why? Like, her legs didn't have any bruises, so she was... He just lost his wife. Like, it has nothing to do with the woman dying. It has to do with poor Edward and his property. That's really what it boils down to. Yeah, and that's exactly what it was. Because if it had been a man who died, he probably would have completed the yeah, freaking examination. Yeah, if it had been a woman, they wouldn't have even let her in the same room and they would have caught all the head injuries. And she probably would have been the first suspect. Yep. So all of this information was enough for Preston to order that Elva's body be exhumed. Something that Edward, of course, as they said in all of every single article, said he vigorously complained about it, of course. And Preston orders that a complete autopsy be done. Not that half-assed shit that Dr. Knapp did. And Edward was told, like, if you don't comply with this, you're going to, like, he basically is going to have to attend, like, a question. And he's going to have to be questioned. So he ends up letting them. But he replied, but this is his reply. And this is kind of what, like, starts to turn some suspicions after all this. He replies, but they will not be able to prove I did it. Wow. You basically just admitted it right then and there. Yep. So a few days later, Dr. Knapp and they let Dr. Knapp participate in this autopsy. Same guy, the same. Uh, This time there's two other doctors, but they still like, I don't know about you guys, but if someone fucked up the first time, I wouldn't want them doing it the second time. But, you know, whatever. So they let him and two other doctors give the body a thorough and complete examination. A local newspaper, listen to this name of the, the local newspaper's name is the Pocahontas Times. Of course it was. (laughs) And I literally wrote here, I didn't make up the name. 
reported that, quote, on the throat were marks of fingers indicating that she had been choked, that the neck was dislocated between the first and second vertebrae, the ligaments were torn and ruptured, and the windpipe had been crushed at a point in front of the neck. The findings of the autopsy were actually made public, and this is when the community starts to be like, of course, shocked and upset that the man they liked so much might have possibly killed his wife. And so this kind of leads to him being arrested and taken to jail in Lewisburg, Virginia, where he's held until this trial in June. So this is all happening in about February, and this they hold him until June for his trial. So now the autopsy's done. They have all these findings. But, you know, even though obviously she had been murdered, this was at a time before DNA and before fingerprints. And there was nothing proving that he did it. The reports of like his Edward Strange behavior were like kind of sticking with Preston. Like he couldn't let it go. And of course, it made him cast suspicion on him. Duh. And he was just intrigued by the fact that Mary Jean with her ghost story kind of told him exactly how Elva was killed. This is before anybody knew that the doctor didn't finish the examination and all that stuff. And she knew that she had been like violently attacked and choked and her neck had been broken. So this also sticks with him. And so he also thought that maybe the mother did it and made up this whole ghost story in a whole big plot to frame Edward. Because of course, that would be what what would happen. Yes, because why would a man do this to his wife? Mm Mm-hmm. So now he continues to investigate, begins looking into Edward's past, and guess what he learns? He learns that Edward had actually been married before. Not once, but twice. Where are those women at this time? They're both dead. No. So the first one, we also learned that he had been in jail for stealing a horse. (laughs) Yeah, that was a punishable offense back then, but I think of it as stealing a car now, because like... So apparently this wife had been, had told that, shockingly... Edward was violent and beat her. This is wife number one? This is wife number one. I There's some reports that say that they were actually divorced. So I think she, you know, there's, I'm not sure if she died while they were married or while they were divorced because there's two conflicting reports. But either way, homegirl died. How? A broken neck after falling from a haystack. Ooh. His second marriage ended after just eight months because of his the wife's mysterious death. This mis- mystery was what exactly? How did it happen? She had died... While helping Edward repair a chimney, he was on top and she was placing rocks in a basket with rope attached to it. And as he was bringing it up, it suddenly turned over and dropped the rocks on her head. So he accidentally dropped rocks on life number two. Yes. Right. She fell and broke her neck. The third murder, because that's pretty much what it is, a bona fide husband killer. What's interesting is he didn't, he got away with the same murder because of the technical term of pregnancy or whatever it was. Right. So again, he was about to get away with the third murder was an accidental whatever. Time it was from a complication from a pregnancy. Oh no, wait, it's very similar to the other one that died. Like, and yet they still like don't the benefit of the doubt. Right. So then Preston also learns that in between these two marriages, when Edward was in prison, which again, I'm not sure if this was in regards to the horse or whatever, because like, this is 1897, there's not a lot of information. But while he was in prison for whatever he was in prison for, he bragged that he was going to marry seven women in his lifetime. Not simultaneously, though, because like he has standards, but he was going to marry seven women in his lifetime. And really, the only way to marry seven women in a lifetime at a time where divorce wasn't popular 
was to kill them and then marry somebody else. It sounds crazy to think this way, but like you said, there was no forensics, there was no DNA, there were no women's rights, there were not a lot of police. Yeah, women weren't even allowed to vote at this time. Like, there was nothing. I'm sure that it's realistic because he knew he could do it. Right. He knew nobody was going to question him. Right. And so between the second wife's mysterious death, the first wife's mysterious death, and even though everything was quote-unquote circumstantial, he thought it was enough to, like, bring him to trial. Because at this point, he is like arrested but there's nothing to bring him so now they get to the trial and the star witness was elva's mother mary jean heaster but understandably so preston kind of wanted to avoid the whole ghost story as proof of the murder but not for the reason you would think it wasn't just because it sounds batshit to say that the ghost of your dead daughter told you that she was murdered by her husband but because mary jean telling the story may have been considered as hearsay by the defense To attempt to prove that she was unreliable, Edward's lawyer questioned her about the ghostly visits, and it actually backfires. Mary Jean refuses to change her story because, you know, to her, it's true. No matter how hard the questioning got or how hard she was being badgered by the defense, she never, ever changes her story. And as it turns out, most people in the community and on the jury actually believes her story. It's believable because the evidence backed up the original. Right. I feel like it's because she had this story and then the autopsy backed it up. So Edward, being the moron that he is, takes the stand in his own defense. Oh, no. Men got to say whatever they wanted. And nobody- Not sure like what lawyer told him that was a good idea. Um, this is the same lawyer that couldn't dipro- disprove a fucking ghost story on the stand. So... So when Edward takes the stand in his own defense, he like just starts like rambling and asking the jury to look into his face and see if he was guilty. (laughs) Wow. Dude, that's your defense. Look me in the eyes. So then a local newspaper called the Greenbrier Independent reported that, quote, his testimony, manner and so forth made an unfavorable impression on the spectators. You think? No fucking shit. Yeah. So on June 22nd, 1897, the jury deliberated deliberated for an hour and 10 minutes. Damn. (laughs) Before coming back. Record, seriously. Right, before coming back with a guilty verdict. So Edward was sentenced to life in prison, but this motherfucker, who's never going to pay for his fucking sins, he he gets to die. He gets to die three years in. Because apparently the the prison was like had a, a measles and pneumonia epidemic and he dies March 1st of 1900. So he basically does like two and a half years in prison and then passes away. So a historical marker in Greenberg County, there's like a commemoration because it's like an unusual court case. And this is literally known as the only case in which the testimony from a ghost helped convict a murderer. So there's like a historical marker like commemorating it. Mary Jean Heaster, though, Elva's mother, lives until 1916, never recanted her story on Elva's ghost. So like, it's like, you know, did her story convince the jury and win the case? Maybe, maybe not. Did her daughter really reach out to her from beyond the grave? Or was this all in her head or like a grief processing or an incredibly elaborate lie that just happened to turn out to be the truth? Who knows? But whether or not you believe, and with or without that ghost story, Mary Jean never would have gone to Preston. The case never would have been reopened, and Edward never would have been convicted if it wasn't for the ghost story. And that's the case. You kind of just gave me like the very brief, oh, this ghost helped the testimony. I honestly just thought it's super dramatic. I mean, this was pretty dramatic in and of itself. But in my head, I'm like, what, did they spell something out on a chalkboard? Right. Like, that's what you think. Like, they wrote something in blood on the wall. I was thinking like some shining shit, you know, but this is just equally weird because it's also like the way she described she would bend her head around and then walk out a very dramatic way of trying to show somebody like this is what happened to me and like this is how it happened. And to be taken seriously 
that would be harder now than it would have been back. Of course, because now you could be telling the truth and they still try to disprove it. Like there's a lot of things that they break down just they would right away just say, oh, no, she's completely... That wouldn't even be admissible in court. They'd be like, there's no... Right, you can't prove it. So, like, that wouldn't even be... We came up with a hot tip to double-check the body. Like, that's literally would be... That was how... It would be an anonymous out. tip. For sure, it would be an anonymous tip because nobody would ever, like, bring this up in trial because, all, you know, the defense's only job is to create, like, reasonable doubt. And the fact that this lawyer could not create reasonable doubt with a ghost story is, like, go back to law school. You suck. Because as much as I believe that things like that happen, you should be able to disprove or at least cause some doubt in a ghost story in a trial. And at a time where women really had no rights, it's just very surprising that all of this happened. Because again, Mary Jean Heaster's her mother. She's just another woman. Like, why would you believe her? And so there's a lot of triumphant parts of this story. The fact that it, not just the fact that it was a ghost story, but that a woman, a, a, a woman killer was brought to justice because he got away with the first two. So he was finally brought to justice. You were brought to justice by someone who was related to one of your wives. And that's... By another woman, too. Someone who shouldn't have even had the right to, like... So it's a step in ghost feminism. I like it. Ghost feminism. It's a good one. Who does that? 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 I found a heroic who does that. Ooh, we don't do many of those. We don't do heroics, but I think we need to hear about some heroes. I'm going to take the tip from John Krasinski, who started Some Good News, and I wanted to bring up something that I thought was pretty cool. Hilarious headline, so you'll still laugh a little bit. Story I found on HuffPost.com, and it says, Teen Wrestling Champ Squashes Kidnapping by Squashing the Suspect. You know what I'm picturing in my head? Do you remember Saved by the Bell where AC Slater would wear like his little itty bitty like wrestling outfit? So I'm picturing a teenager wearing this little itty bitty wrestling outfit and like tackling some overgrown man. There is a video, so it would ruin that for you, but I do like that imagery because the tiny Speedo thing is like... With his little curly 80s mullet. Yeah, I mean, who didn't find him hot at that time? Heartthrob, what can you say? Authorities say Cannon Bauer, 16, helped stop a kidnapping and assault near Las Cruces, New Mexico by pinning a man to the ground until deputies arrived. Mayfield High School student Cannon Bauer was being lauded as a hero after controlling suspect Daniel Arroyo Beltran, 22, of Phoenix, Doña Ana County, or, yeah, because... It is Las Cruces, and it is New Mexico, so I'm assuming it's Spanish. Whatever, we made it Spanish. Doña Ana County deputies arrested Beltran Wednesday after witnesses told authorities he tried to kidnap three children at a gas station. Three ch- Wow. What the fuck, man? The mother told authorities that she got off at a bus stop with her children, ages 9, 2, and 1, and was waiting for an Uber driver to arrive when a man grabbed her two-year-old child and demanded the woman turn over her children. And she's waiting for an Uber. Like, that is insane. And, like, in public. It's not like she did it in some, like, desolate alley. Mm -hmm. She's at a bus stop. Witnesses told authorities the man punched the woman (gasps) and others who tried to intervene before the woman was able to rush inside the store with her children. Witnesses said the attacker followed, continuing his demands. What the fuck? What is wrong with you? Beating down other people and follows her in and still thinks he's going to get away with these kids. Like, what the hell are you thinking? Quote, punches were being thrown. He could hear screams of terror. So he jumped in his truck and went across the street. Cannon Bauer's dad, Troy Bauer, told his son news. By the time he got there, they had gone inside. And so he got out of his truck and went inside. So this kid heard what was going on. So he was wasn't like, even like involved in the scuffle. He's just like a, a witness. He heard screaming. Oh I mean, God. like the woman is screaming for her children's lives. And uh, he ran in that direction, like at age 16. Like that is an amazing thing for a 16 year old. Because I know at 16, I was really fucking selfish. And I probably would have not done anything. I would have called the cops. I I yeah, I probably would have called the cops, but I would never have run in. 
Troy Bauer added that his son told him he body slammed the man and got him in a chokehold until deputies arrived. Cannon Bauer won the District 35A championship in the 285 pound or 120 Damn. kilogram heavyweight division on February 16th and later competed at a state tournament. You can fear for your own child's safeties in that situation, Troy Bauer said. You don't know if the guy's maybe got a knife or a gun. You don't know what he's capable of. However, he said he was confident his son would do the right thing and succeed. There's no indication in police reports that the man knew the mother or her children. I was going to say, I'm like, this sounds like maybe the father was trying to kidnap all three children. The, the Like of how persistent he was and the fact that this was a stranger, it just makes it a lot more creepy. In his young 20s, probably. I mean, honestly, this kind of almost sounds like someone on, on drugs, but right. still a pedophile or something. Beltran was charged with battery, assault, child abuse and kidnapping and remained jailed Friday. Online courts did not list an attorney, Phil Beltran, who could co- comment on his behalf. And there's actually a video of the kids. So if you guys are interested, we'll post. It'll also be on our show notes as well. Canon, wherever you are, buddy, you are, you are a hero and you're an amazing 16 year old. Thank you for this who does that. We normally do a funnier one. But this was awesome. I think this was better. And like to your parents, they definitely raised a really stand up kid. Absolutely. So it's awesome. However, justice prevails. At the end of the day, you walk away feeling good. So this was a generally feel-good episode. So I hope you guys enjoyed it. Please like, subscribe, leave us a review. You know the whole spiel. But most importantly, stay weird, Americas. Bye. Bye.